Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and crime. I'm Sloan, your bartender for today. And I'm Trish, your crime tender for today. So grab a cocktail, buckle up for the Hot Mess Express. Toot toot! Beep beep! to another round with your bartender Sloan. Today we are going to make a green tea shot. But don't let the name fool you. It's usually served as a drink, not as a shot. Although it did start out as a shot. But in my opinion, it's it's really better as a drink. So anyways, let's get into this. First, you're going to start out with 1.5 ounces of Jameson Irish whiskey. I'm not a whiskey fan. I'm really not. But it does work in this drink, so just trust me. Hang in there. 1.5 ounces of the Jameson, 0.5 ounces of peach tree schnapps, 2 ounces of sour mix. Either stir that together or shake it together, pour it into your glass, and then top your drink off with a little bit of Sprite. Like, I'm talking 1 to 2 ounces max. This one is so smooth. It does not taste like it's got the liquor in it. It's one of those drinks that you have to be very careful with. And like I said, I do not like whiskey. But with this drink, it works. It's a really good one. It's very, very smooth. So definitely try this out. We will have a recipe card and a reel on Instagram at Tequila She Wrote. We will have a TikTok up with this recipe as well. Tequila She Wrote there as well. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Remember, we post our episodes here every Tuesday and Friday. We have our Patreon up and running where you can get episodes for as little as $2 a month to help support your favorite gals. And that will give you ad-free episodes, early release episodes once we get that figured out. I'm pretty sure we have it figured out, but (laughs) that's what that includes too. And then you get a bonus episode as well. Yes. And then from every tier from there, you get different things. Uh, The next tier up is $5 a month. And I do a quote unquote ruining paradise episode, $10 a month. Trish does a haunted episode. And then uh, $20 a month, we do a monthly happy hour. Ask us anything. Let's chit chat sort of situation. And then we have a, if you are really batshit crazy (laughs) and want to contribute $50. We're not going to stop you from spending your money on crazy people because we're crazy too. But there are also, we have merchandise with every level. We have more merchandise coming that's all powered through Patreon. So they will send that to you and everything. But it's a really cool space that we're building up and we would love for you to check it out. All right. We're going to kick you off to the episode now. Enjoy. All right. So I'm Trish, your crime tender today. And... Today's case, we had talked about doing it for a while, just kind of tied in with my haunted stuff and that, and then one of our listeners, who's also a little friend of mine, Z, shout out, she requested us to do the Lizzie Borden case, which, the infamous 
Yes, it is, it is a well-known case, but I feel like people just know the bare minimum of it, unless you've dived in yourself and really researched it. Yeah. You don't know a lot of the details. But also that being say, said, like a lot of the details that are out there are very like skewed just to like frame her. Yeah. So. <laughs> I did not know that there were other suspects in this case until like the past few years once I became obsessed with true crime podcasts. Yes. Like it was like Lizzie did it. She just got out of it. Yeah. But when you dive into it in that, you see that there are other people that could have done it. Yeah. I think I I don't think it was her anymore. It's, like, it's the stuff I'm going to like talk about definitely does like I said, it does kind of skew it towards her, but like I said, there there were other people in the house that are just as guilty. Yeah. <laughs> so this one's going to be a long one. We're going to see how how fast I can get through some of this stuff. It might be another two-parter. If it starts getting long, we'll figure out where we're going to cut this off and yeah. get you a second part. But hopefully I can get through this because this is like a well-known. It's not like a lot of this is shocking. Right. Here's to hoping it's one <laughs> for my editing. <laughs> like sanity. Let's hope it's one. <laughs> All right. So, a little bit about Miss Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Andrew Borden was born July 19th, 1860 in River... Oh, I keep want- I kept wanting to do this the whole time I was talk- like typing this in. Mm-hmm. It's Fall River, not River Falls. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I wanted to do River Falls, but it just made sense in my head. Sounds like a TV show. Right? <laughs> but it's in... Fall River, Massachusetts. Okay. She was the daughter of a well-to-do businessman, Andrew Jackson Borden, and her mother was Sarah Anthony Borden. Andrew married his second wife three years after Lizzie's mother died, and he married Abby DeFree, DeFee, I think it's DeFree. Uh, he married her in 1865, so this is, Lizzie is about five years old at this time. Lizzie was said to be a very popular, like, person. She was engaged in a lot of charity work. Her father, on the other hand, was said to be this, like, dour, like, man. He kept to himself. He was also known to be very stingy. But he was also very wealthy, which I feel like that's kind of somewhat of a common thing for wealthy people. It's kind of how you become wealthy. Yeah. Penny pension. Yeah. Lizzie's father kind of did have a reason for being frugal, though. Although he was the descendant of a wealthy family, they let him struggle. They did not help him financially when he was growing up. So he made his wealth by being frugal so like I said it's yeah it's kind of how you become wealthy you <laughs> don't go well i got this one i can spend it yeah he made his money through selling furniture and caskets 
and then eventually became a property developer. He was the director of several textile mills and owned considerable commercial property. He was also the president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Free Safe Deposit and Trust Company. Sounds familiar. <laughs> At the time of his death, which, if you don't know, shocker, he dies. All right, we have to take a brief intermission, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> We're back. Pretty sure I remember where I left off. Uh, okay. So, yes. Andrew owns all these different textile mills and everything. He's president of the New Union Savings Bank, director of DeFree Safe Deposit and Trust Company. At the time of his death, his estate was valued at 300000 which... As of 2020, that was equivalent to $9 million. So, quite a lot of money. Quite a lot of money for that time. Gulp. <laughs> so, as I said, Andrew was a frugal person, despite his wealth. Um, the Borden home lacked indoor plumbing, which at the time was very common for wealthy people to have. Right. He but, just didn't want to spend the money yes. on it. So, Lizzie and her older sister, Emma, were often at odds with him and their stepmother over financial matters. And speaking of Lizzie and her sister, Emma, they had a relatively religious upbringing. Mm -hmm. So, they attended the Central Congregational Church. They... Um, well, Lizzie in particular was very involved in church activities. She even taught Sunday school to children who were recent immigrants of the United States. Um, she was involved in Christian organizations. She was also part of contemporary social movements. So, like I said, she was very popular. She was very charitable. Right. Her father, not, not so, so much. much. Lizzie and her stepmother didn't have the best relationship. Lizzie and, like, not just Lizzie, but even her older sister, like, and the stepmother didn't really mm -hmm. have a great relationship. Lizzie called her stepmother <laughs> Mrs. Borden. <laughs> I, I mean, I call my mom by her first name most of the time, but geez. Yes. And she believed Abby married her father because of his wealth. Possibly. Yes. So, that's getting out of the family aspect for right now. Another major person in the story is Bridget Sullivan, also referred to as Maggie. She is the Borden's 25-year-old live-in housemaid who was an immigrant from Ireland. Which, if you know anything... You don't say. <laughs> you know anything about the like the boarding case? You know she she and herself is very sketchy. Mm -hmm. Maggie said Lizzie and Emma uh, rarely ate meals with their parents. So 
again, that's the whole family strain there. In May of 1892, Andrew killed multiple pigeons in his barn with a hatchet because he believed they were attracting local kids to hunt them. Hmm. Little did he know, though, or at least if he did know, he didn't really care. <laughs> Lizzie had recently built a roost for these pigeons, so she was understandably very upset that he decided to go and kill them. Mm -hmm. So that's something that she could hold against him, possibly. The most sinister side of me thinks that he did it because she cared for the pigeons. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I just, I had never heard that, and I thought it was, I was like, well, then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a family argument in July 1892 led both the sisters to take an extended vacation to mm. New Bedford. When Lizzie returned to Fall River, she chose to stay in a local, like, they called it a rooming house. It's mm -hmm. basically like a little bed and breakfast thing for four days before she decided to return to the family residence. This is only a week before the murders. <laughs> I did not know that before this. Yep. Tensions grew for months in the family. A major part of this was... Also, like I said, Andrew's a property developer and wealthy in that. So he has, right. like, basically properties to, like, just give to people and stuff. He, Must be nice. Yeah, right? He continued to gift real estate to various branches of Abby's family. The home that they lived in until their mother died. So, like, basically their childhood home. Right. And they purchased, purchased this property from their father for a whole one dollar. Must be nice. <laughs> right. Must and then a few nice. weeks later <laughs> basically like not a few weeks later but a few weeks before the murder they sold the property back to their father for five thousand dollars. <sighs> which in 2020 would have been equivalent to a hundred and forty four thousand dollars. <laughs> So, Quite the business to get into. Right? They, they purchased it for a whole $1 and sold it back for <laughs> how much yeah. of the profit. Yeah. A 50,000% profit. <laughs> Pretty much. The night before the murders, you have another character in this whole murder mm -hmm. scenario come in. And that is... Lizzie and Emma's uncle from their mother's side. Yep. His name is John Vincom Vincom Morse. Good to me. So, getting into our murders. So, as we said, John Morse arrived August 3rd, 1892. He slept in the guest room that night. Like after breakfast the next morning, him and John not John, him and Andrew sorry, <laughs> went to the sitting room where they chatted for almost an hour. It's noted that at breakfast, everybody was there. Um, Emma was still away on her vacation. Mm -hmm. And at breakfast, you had Andrew, Abby, Lizzie, John, and Maggie all present. So 
nobody's unaccounted for. After John's little sit down with Andrew, he decides to go for a little walkabout and whatnot at 8.48 in the morning. He went to buy a pair of oxen and to visit his niece in Fall River. And he planned to return to the boarding home for lunch around noon. Andrew left for his morning walk at around 9 in the morning. So that puts Andrew out. Mm -hmm. And as we know, that puts the uncle out also. Yeah. Around 9 or 10.30, Abby goes upstairs to clean the guest room even though this was supposed to be part of lizzie and emma's regular chores Mm -hmm. but she decided she was gonna go do it whether that was just because lizzie didn't want to or i don't know it never said ultimately this is where she was attacked and murdered according to the forensic investigator abby was facing her murderer at the time of the attack She was first struck on the side of the head with a hatchet, cutting her above the ear, causing her to turn and fall face down, which caused contusions on her nose and forehead. Mm -hmm. Her killer then struck her 17 more times to the back of the head, ultimately killing her. They know about this time when he got home because apparently when he was trying to get into the house, his key wouldn't work. So he had to knock to be let in. Maggie had to go unlock the door and found it jammed. Which it's noted she cursed at. And then later testified that she heard Lizzie laugh immediately after this. So whether she was laughing at the fact that Maggie cursed or that her father was locked out. But it's, you can't, unless you, (laughs) it's questionable. Yes. She didn't see Lizzie, but she stated she thought she heard her voice coming from the top of the stairs. It's only, like, noted, really, in, like, her testament as, like, noteworthy because at this time, Abby's supposed to be dead. And the way the house is laid out, apparently, if you're anywhere standing on that second floor, you can see into the guest room. Mm -hmm. So you would have seen Abby. Right. On the floor. Lizzie later denied that she was upstairs at this time. So she couldn't have seen that Abby was killed. Mm -hmm. Her, I guess her father kind of was like, okay, so she's gone. He sat down on a sofa in like their sitting room. And that, and Lizzie said that she helped him remove his boots and put on slippers instead. But this fact is contradicted by crime scene photos because Andrew has his boots on. So, obviously, Lizzie did not take Take off the boots. boots. Lizzie said after helping her father, because her father wanted to take a nap on the sofa, so Mm -hmm. after she helped him take off his boots and pretty much get comfy, she said she told Maggie that there was a sale at a department store she wanted to go to and asked to be allowed to go. And I guess Maggie was like, sure, whatever. But I don't feel well, so I'm going to go upstairs and take a nap. So then again, I asked, because Maggie's room is on the third floor. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you have to... I've not seen the house myself. 
I've seen pictures and they yeah. don't ever really go through the thing. So I don't know how, if they're saying you can see from the second floor, mm-hmm. I don't know if there was a separate stairway getting her up to the third floor, but Maggie is said to have gone upstairs to her third floor bedroom to rest because she didn't feel well and she had just been cleaning windows and she went up around 1110. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's, that's strange, but like I said, I don't know if there was a separate stairwell because I do not that kind of around that time they did have like servant like right. passageways yeah. and stuff. Back stairwell. Yes. So Maggie goes upstairs and then just before 1110, so Maggie went upstairs because Andrew got back at what time did I say? About 1030. So Maggie probably went upstairs around like 1045, something like that. Mm-hmm. So at 1110, she heard Lizzie call from downstairs. Maggie, come quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Right? <laughs> Andrew was slumped on the couch in the same room. He had been struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet-like weapon. Mm-hmm. One of his eyes was said to have been split clean in two, which suggests he was asleep at the time of his attack. Which, if he was taking a nap, it's very likely. And when he was discovered, he his wounds were still bleeding, which meant that the attack was very recent. Mm-hmm. The blood had not coagulated. Something like that. <laughs> I was trying to sound smart, and now I sound dumb. (laughs) So, they immediately summoned for the family physician, Mm -hmm. who happened to just live, like, across the street, to come over. Mm -hmm. And he determined both victims had died, which... You don't say. (laughs) Right? Poor, Poor Abby's got 17... But she's still alive. Yeah. And what, Andrew's got 10 or 11 strikes with a hatchet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think they're dead. <laughs> yeah. So detectives determined that Andrew's death happened about 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. You have Maggie who... Not Maggie. You have Abby who... Supposedly by 10.30 is dead. Mm-hmm. And then you have Andrew dead at 11. So that's a half hour time difference. Yeah. So. That's not a lot of time, but it's also a lot of time. Yes. So we get into the investigation, which I am so glad investigations don't happen like this anymore. Some still kind of do, but for the most part. They're, they're not held like this anymore. So Lizzie was immediately questioned and her initial answers were at times strange and contradictory. At first she said she heard a groan or scraping noise or distress call before she entered the house. Mm-hmm. Two hours later she told police she hadn't heard anything when entering and didn't realize anything was wrong. 
When asked where her stepmother was, Lizzie recounted that she had gotten that letter and gone to see her sick friend and thought she had returned. So she just casually asked someone to go upstairs and look for her. Casually. <laughs> yes. So Maggie, the servant, and a neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, were halfway up the stairs when they were eye-level with the floor and they saw Abby in the guest room laying face down on the floor. Officers who interviewed Lizzie reported they disliked her attitude, saying she was too calm and poised. Which, you never know how you're going to react to mm. anything until you're in that situation. True. True. And she also had a very, like, complicated relationship with her dad and stepmom. Yeah, so it's it's not unlikely that she would be not as distraught. Yeah. But also, we find out later a little more about kind of her situation at the time. Right. So, I know it's not too much farther down, so we'll get to that. We'll come back to this Ooh. little point. Despite her attitude and changing alibi, no one bothered to check her for bloodstains. <laughs> right? I feel like that, like, nowadays would be, like, <laughs> the eye roll I just gave. <laughs> would be, like, the point one. <laughs> Let's check you or, like, yeah. the area for any indicators that... Especially with an axe yes. murder. Police did search her room, but later admitted to not searching properly because Lizzie felt unwell. <laughs> when searching the basement, police found two hatchets... Two axes and a hatch, a hatchet head that had a broken handle. The hatchet head was noted as being the suspected murder weapon as the break looked fresh and the ash and dust that was on the head appeared to be deliberately applied to make it look like it had been in the basement for some time. But, <laughs> get ready for another big eye roll here. Always. <laughs> None of the tools were removed from the house. Oh, okay. <laughs> Makes sense, even right? The, even, the even the suspected weapon. Yes. Mm. Nothing. So many S's. <laughs> Nothing was removed from the house at that point. Well, if you go back for it later, it's no good at taking it. There's no... Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, during the autopsies, the bodies of Andrew and Abby... Like, had their stomachs removed, and they were tested for poison, along with the family's milk. Mm -hmm. None was found, but also, I will say, after listening to crime shows and that, I do know that some poisons in small quantities don't yeah. stay in the system very long, so they could or have broken down. Yeah. Yes. So, this was done because of the mysterious illness that plagued the family. Uh, Lizzie was suspected of buying hydrocyanic, basically uh, cyanide. Okay. It's just the more uh, yeah scientific term for it, the I guess. The receipt term. Yes. Uh, she was suspected of buying like cyanide. Mm -hmm. Cyanide. Yeah, cyanide. <laughs> In a diluted form from a local drugstore, which, I mean, 
back then, they did have, like, stuff that you wouldn't even think you would be able to purchase. Uh, Cocaine was in Coca-Cola. Yes. Like, so, it's not unheard of that you would just be able to go to the drugstore and get, like, a poison. Yeah. But she defended herself by saying that she just only inquired about the acid as to clean her furs. Which a local medical examiner said that the it this acid has no like cleaning purposes whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> why you would be buying it to clean your furs? But some bad advice. Yes. So police were stationed around the house on the night of August fourth. So this is the like day after being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the day of or day after. A police officer that was watching the house said he saw Lizzie Mm -hmm. and her friend Alice, who had come to stay with them the night following the murders. And she stayed in one of the guest rooms while the uncle was said to have stayed in the attic guest room. But... Other reports say that he he probably just stayed in the same room that Abby had been murdered in. So that's uh, contaminating the crime scene. Uh, right? I don't know if I could sleep in a room no. that someone just died in. No. But to each their own. But this police officer said he saw Lizzie and Alice entering the cell, the cellar carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. Both women then left the cellar, but Lizzie later returned, alone. He was unable to see what she was doing, but said she appeared to be bent over the sink. So, whether she was disposing of evidence or doing something else, maybe she we was never sick. know. Yes. Yeah. Who knows? On August 5th, Moore's, their uncle left the house and was mobbed by hundreds of people and had to be escorted by police back to the house. August 6th, two days after the murders, police finally decided they were going to conduct a more thorough search of the house. Finally. (laughs) They inspected the sisters' clothing and confiscated the broken-handed, like, handled hatchet, finally. (laughs) And that evening, the mayor and the police and a police officer visited the Bordens, where Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect. The next morning, Alice walked into the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress, and Lizzie said she was planning to put it on the fire because it was covered in paint. Hmm. <laughs> You're making yourself look suspicious, girl. Just a little. <laughs> It was never confirmed if the dress that was the dress she was wearing on the day of the murders, but it was just noted that just after you were informed you were being a suspect, Mm -hmm. you were caught burning a dress. Yeah. Not a good look, girlfriend. (laughs) Yes. Not a good look. August 8th, Lizzie appeared at an inquest hearing and she requested that the family attorney be there, but was denied because a state stature at the time said inquests needed to be done in private. Mm-hmm. This is the little note I'm getting back to. This is a little bit about Lizzie. 
Lizzie was prescribed regular doses of morphine to calm her nerves. And so this was... Morphine. Th- yes. <laughs> so this was thought to affect her testimony. So if she... If she was taking this morphine, it doesn't... Nowhere did it say. Was it a recent thing she was diagnosed? Or was this a... Yeah. Continuous thing. So if she was on morphine when the... Like, murders happened. That could explain That it. could explain why she has such contradictory, like, statements. So, while on morphine in that... And during this whole testimony, her... Behavior was said to be erratic, and she would refuse to answer questions, even if they would be beneficial for her to answer. She also gave contradictory accounts of the day and the events that happened, saying that she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father returned, and then saying later on, when asked like where she was when her father returned, she was in the dining room ironing when he returned, so... Mm-hmm. We have no idea where Lizzie was when he returned. Which kind of sounds like somebody on... <laughs> on some good drugs. Yeah. There was also the him helping her, like, helping, not him, but, like, her helping him with his boots, even though his boots were found to be on him when he was murdered. So, like I said... The morphine very possibly could have affected everything, for all we know. Yeah. August 11th, Lizzie was served a warrant for her arrest and jailed. During her trial, her inquest testimony was ruled inadmissible in court, probably because of how (laughs) erratic she was. The inquest made friends change their opinions on her innocence. So at first they were like, no, Lizzie could never do this. And then once they listened to her little inquest, because apparently it was public, they were like, no, I'm, I, I'm not so sure. And it also made the press go wild. Like, the Boston Globe dedicated a whole three-page write-up to this inquest. Which at the time, you gotta think, that's that's a lot of yeah. Coverage. Got, a, got a lot to say. Yes. A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Borden was indicted on December 2nd. The trial for Lizzie began June 5th, 1893, in New Bedford. Mm-hmm. Five days before the trial, it is noted that another axe murder happened to happen in Fall River. Hmm, you don't say. This was poor little Bertha Manchester, who was found hacked to death in her kitchen. The similarities between this murder and the Bordens was noted by jurors. It was later found out, though, that Portuguese immigrant was found guilty of the Manchester murder, and it was determined that he just so happened to not be in Fall River at the time of the Borden murders. Convenient. Yes. You have Lizzie standing trial. You have an axe murder that just happened. And then you have, like, very erratic statements. Yeah. So there's a like, lot I get going it. On. I get it, but I feel like 
as like a was it there's a lot going on. <laughs> I feel like there's not a strong case for like going against Lizzie. No, she was just the easy to point to. Yes. So during the trial against Lizzie, the broken hatchet was hatchet was convincing con- convincingly <laughs> determined to be the murder weapon. One officer said the hatchet handle was found near the hatchet, but another officer contradicted this. So, was it or was it not? We don't know. No bloody clothes were ever found at the house, but Alice had testified about the dress incident. So, there's that. Lizzie's presence in the house was also a major point of of discussion during the trial. According to testimony, Maggie entered the second floor of the home around... 1058 and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. So again, like I said, it's very, you can say, yes, Lizzie did this, but also there, there's a lot saying that she was never even present in the house when any of this happened. Yeah. So something that you don't see nowadays, you just see photos in the, in the courtrooms and that now, but (laughs) this is the (laughs) 1800s. So, things were a little different. Both victims' heads had been removed during their autopsies so that the skulls could be admitted into evidence and brought into the courtroom. And when Lizzie saw them, obviously she fainted. Same girl if I saw two heads. (laughs) Granted, they're probably, like, skeletal at this point, but still, like, that you know that's your father and your stepmother's heads, whether... You had a good relationship with them or not. That's still two people you know's heads just there. Evidence of the purchase of the cyanide the day before the murders was excluded by the judge as it was deemed irrelevant to the case because they didn't die from poisoning. They died from being hacked to death. So on June 20th, 1983, the jury deliberated at length, and after, like, their, like, after some lengthy closing statements and everything, they did their deliberations, and it only took about an hour and a half to acquit Lizzie of the murders. Mm-hmm. So. The evidence was not there. Yes, I feel like with what I have looked into there wasn't a lot that you could be like, yes, yeah, she was guilty. Yeah. You could pretty much roll a lot of it out. At the most, it's all circumstantial. And yes. it, it doesn't, for it to be her, it just as easily could have been her sister, in or, my opinion. Like, just, just from the point of view that they all lived in the house together, if Lizzie had it out for her dad and her stepmom, it just as easily could have been her sister, but Lizzie was like the easier Lizzie target. Lizzie was home. Emma at this time was still away. So that's the only thing. That's why Lizzie was looked more into than Emma. But I'm about to get into the other two suspects. But before I do that, there's just a few little things. When Lizzie was leaving the courthouse reporters kind of like were like how how are you feeling that and she said she was the happiest woman in the world she's getting girl you're not making yourself look that great 
same. <laughs> so, like I said, to this day, Lizzie remains a prime suspect in the murders. There have been many speculations as to why she is the prime suspect, but none can fully be proven. And like I said, as I went through this stuff, yeah. we kind of like debunked a lot of it. So we get why. Hopefully you do too. Somebody that is looked at is the uncle, John Morse. Yeah. Because he was in the area at the time. The thing that police didn't really like about him, but they couldn't really be like, well, we don't like that. We're going to look into you, in their minds at least, was the fact that his alibi was just too perfect. Yeah. It was too detail-oriented and too perfect to the timeline. Yeah. But they never looked into him, so... Of course not. They had an easy target. (laughs) Yes. So that's where police kind of failed on that end. Another suspect is Maggie Sullivan, the maid. It was said it could have been done out of retaliation for having to clean the windows on such a hot day when mm. she was still recovering from this mysterious illness. Yeah. Also, it's it's a rumor that she and Andrew were having an affair and Abby caught them. So, yes, so if that's true, that's also another possible reason why she would have attacked Abby, but why would she have attacked Andrew? Yeah, if that was the case. Unless Andrew found out and then was upset about That's the only way I could see why she would attack Andrew then. So, yeah, I feel like the uncle and the maid are definitely suspicious. Yes, they're big suspects that were just never looked into because Lizzie was just such an easy target. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a house together. Lizzie started using the name Elizabeth A. Borden. So she tried to make herself not as associated with Yes. She tried to change her name, but still wanted to be her. Right. Girl, you weren't running from that. <laughs> no. Because Abby was ruled to have died first, her estate was transferred to Andrew. And then because Andrew died, his estate then passed down to the girls. Right. So they got double the money. But they didn't get to keep it all. <laughs> They did pay a considerable settlement to Abby's family. Mm -hmm. So, again, if you're going back to possible motives in that, you also have the fact that they could have done a joint thing and killed them for for money. So, that brings you back to Lizzie or Emma. Yeah. (laughs) Or both. I don't think anybody ever looked at the possibility that it was both. Two can't keep a secret if one of them is dead. <laughs> the sisters lived together for years despite being ostracized by Fall River Society. And it wasn't until 1905 that they had an argument and they separated. And mm-hmm. Lizzie, I guess, kind of stayed in the area, but Emma moved elsewhere. Both 
eventually passed. Lizzie passed first with pneumonia on June 1st, 1927. Few attended her funeral. And only nine days later, Emma passed from chronic nephritis. Sounds right to me. (laughs) And they never reunited. It wasn't until after they died, because neither of them had married, Mm -hmm. that they were basically reunited because they were buried side by side on the family plot. And that's that's pretty much the, the boarding case. Like I said... I, before I dived into it and started, like, kind of being more into true crime and hearing other people's takes on it and then, like, researching this, like, yeah, I remember the whole old school rhyme with the Lizzie Borden had an axe. Mm-hmm. Just, like, gave her mother a 40 wax or something mm-hmm. like that. There's a lot of inaccuracies in that whole school rhyme. Yeah. But... You grew up being like, yeah, Lizzie Bourne, she killed her, she killed her parents. <clears throat> and after researching and everything, I don't, like you, I said, I don't think she did. If she did, she didn't kill both of them, I don't think. I, I think that if Lizzie were to be the one responsible for it, I think she would have stopped at her stepmother. I don't think she would have killed her dad. I think it was the uncle. Yeah, because you have reason to kill both of them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I the uncle did not enter the picture for me until about a year or so ago, and I heard it on one of my podcasts that I listened to. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. It's like all I listen to. I don't even listen to music anymore. Just true crime podcasts. But anyways, one of them brought up the uncle and it was just the way that it was presented, it stuck out to me. And, I mean, even when I was younger, I didn't really think that it was Lizzie. Like, I knew that she was accused. But I'm very much like the cheerleader for the underdog <laughs> underdogs in the stories. <laughs> yes. But, yeah. The uncle is definitely, I think, the best suspect to me. But, like I said, he was never really looked into no, because they had their suspect, and yeah. they bulldogged into her. And also, at the time, you gotta think, they were probably like, oh, it's a woman. She's really easy to to convict. Pin down. Yes. Another reason why I think the uncle's a very, like, suspect, he tried to leave, like, two days after the murder. Like... I mean, he what... was in town visiting, just... But also, like... Your your nieces just lost their father. Wouldn't you have wanted to stay to comfort or something? Me? Be no. there for the family? Me? No. <laughs> I mean, no, but... No. <laughs> you would think... I don't want anything to do with feelings or emotions <laughs> or anything. So, me? No. But you would think he maybe would have wanted to stay around just for a little bit. But no, he was like, all right, bye. I can't say I disagree with them. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, like I said, this is a case that to this day remains unsolved. If you go and visit the Lizzie Borden house, you can actually look at, like, all the crime photos and, like, reports and stuff. And you can piece together your own stuff. 
I would love to visit. I was about to say, I'm sure that that is somewhere that Trish is going to drag me to, so... I would love to visit one as, like, a true crime thing to look at the things and see what maybe maybe we would notice. I feel like we wouldn't notice anything that nobody else has it, but it would still be, it would be cool. And then also, it's, it is said to be a haunted place, which is another reason why we did this episode, because I want to dive into the haunted side on Patreon for it, and... So, going to do like a little crossover. So, that will be February's haunted episode. Uh, we put those up generally the third week of every month. It depends on how quick I can get to editing them. Let's be honest. Sometimes I'm real good about it and sometimes I just get so behind. <laughs> but uh, the Lizzie Borden haunted episode will be up February on Patreon for the haunted tier, you have to be a ten dollar donation say, yeah, I think a it's month. $10. You get the haunted episode every month, my ruining paradise episode every month, a bonus a bonus monthly episode every month. And if the ads have not started at this point, they will be starting soon. You'll get ad free. Ad free on Patreon. Also, just for the ad-free and the monthly, just for those those two perks every month, that is only $2 a month to support us. Yes. Also, once we get a little more out of, like, getting the whole legal stuff and banking and all that, we are looking at doing merch. And I know we said for Patreon people, we're going to send out think like a sticker and something i don't know yeah we do have some merch set up through patreon we're look we're looking at doing some of that ourselves and not just outsourcing it through patreon um but through patreon right now you would get a sticker at the five dollars a month you get a t-shirt at the ten dollars a month and there's some other things that we have dedicated on there it's all broken down for you if you are interested in donating contributing to our dreams just check us out on patreon tequila she wrote and yeah we are going to kick this off to the last call now welcome back to another last call with your bartender sloan and today we are going to talk about one of my favorite trash topics 90 day fiance oh lord Trish can attest to this. I literally have it on his background noise at all times. Yes. Like, it's just. She'll rewatch old episodes. And you rewatch with me, and you're like, oh, I remember this douchebag. Because <laughs> that's what they are. <laughs> A lot of them are. So, anyways, we're just going to get into this. When I first heard the story, somebody was telling me, and I was like, I'm pretty sure I know who this is. And sure enough, I knew exactly who it is. <laughs> The title of the uh, article from the Rolling Stones says, A TikToker made $200,000 farting in jars. Here's how she did it. So, if you're a 90 Day Fiance junkie like me, this is Stephanie Motto, which is the girl that went to Australia to explore her bisexuality for the first time ever with somebody from across the world. No judgment from here. Just explaining the situation. And so she traveled to Australia towards the beginning of COVID, I want to say, because 
she has already some serious like health issues and so she already traveled with masks and stuff but i remember her being extra careful about it so that's why i say the beginning of covid but i binge watched every episode of 90 day fiance and all of the spinoffs within covid time so it all runs together to me yes but anyways so this girl decided that she was going to go on to like her only fans-esque sort of rampage and figure out how to make money off of her internet fandom fandom however whatever that is (laughs) but anyways so she says that people really like the idea of spending an exorbitant amount of money and kind of being i don't want to say swindled but like financially domination thing for a lot of men and she describes herself as a fartrepreneur. <laughs> oh, but Stephanie may have girl bossed a little close to the sun because on Christmas of 2021, she had to go to the ER with what she described as heart attack heart attack esque symptoms, which doctors promptly diagnosed as severe gas pain as a result of her diet. Which included a lot of beans and cabbage and things that make you very gassy. So oh she could God. sell her farts in a jar. Oh, God. As a fartrepreneur. That is bitch. <laughs> I just can't get over that. <laughs> so a social media debate arose as to whether her fart selling enterprise was a savvy business move or a cult- cultural death rattle resounding from the bowels of late-stage capitalism. The puns in this article are just top-notch. Oh, God. But she refused to stand down to her rivals, to people talking down to her, and continued to sell her farts in a jar for a little less than $200 a jar each. And to that I say, raise a glass, girlfriend, because... (laughs) We all got to make money somehow. And maybe I should start selling farts in a jar is what I learned from this. Not that I'm going to because that's disgusting. I'm just saying like feet pics. How many times have I told you? It might be time to start. (laughs) Might be time to start selling some feet pics. No face, no case. (laughs) And that's where we stand on that. (laughs) But That was already a long episode, so I'm just going to cut this last call kind of short, and we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go and leave us a review, a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. If you can't on the platform that whatever you're listening on, then please go to our social media. Give us a follow if you haven't. Leave us a little kind note of encouragement. We love interacting with y'all. We love hearing your spin on these cases. Um, this was the last call to the Lizzie Borden. Borden. So that's a really big case. I know a lot of people have a lot of feelings and theories and whatnot. So come and discuss them. Yes. We got a lot to discuss about this one. Yes. And like we say in the beginning, we record slash put these out every Tuesday and Friday. Like Sloan said, we have social medias on tequila she wrote Every, across the yes. board tiktok facebook 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 <laughs> facebook <laughs> tiktok facebook twitter instagram 
And we have our email is yes. tequila she wrote at gmail.com. We also have Patreon up <laughs> Patreon up and running. Um check us out there. Yeah. But we look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.